Friends, as we come together for the reading of God's Word today, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 38, as well as, uh, if you want to just put a piece of your bulletin or just uh, put a thumb in John 13, Um, we'll be looking at verses 34 and 35. Today we'll complete our fall sermon series on the book Half-Truths. and as we do so, just to, to look back at where we've been, we, we started off with uh, one that we came up with on our own, um, The Devil Made Me Do It, and maybe reflected on, well, sometimes we might blame the devil for the things that we actually wanted to do anyway, but that there is a devil around that seeks to sow discord and uh, factions and jealousy and strife among us. We moved into phrases like, everything happens for a reason, and God won't give you more than you can handle, and God helps those who help themselves. Um, The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. And hopefully through this fall, if you've read the book or engaged in the sermon series or both, um, we can agree that it's helpful to think critically about some of the things that we say. And especially when we measure them against Scripture, as we seek to be um, faithful followers of Jesus as we seek to interpret Scripture well, to to read it well, and to have it read us well. To know that God does go ahead of us, that some things happen for a cause and effect reason, like human stupidity, and yet that God is always at work, going ahead of us, behind us, around us. And today we come to uh, the only one of what was going to be a two-part sermon on love the sinner, hate the sin. And as we conclude this, I hope it's been um, a a good journey of assessing what it is that we believe. Maybe some things that we found very agreeable, maybe some struggling points that make us think deeper about what it is we believe. In all of this, as God's people, we come to the Word together And we pray for God's Holy Spirit to be at work in the reading of the word and in our hearts as we read it. So let's pray together. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that by the power of your Holy Spirit, your word is living and active. As the book of Hebrews tells us, Dividing so far as soul and spirit, joint and marrow, judging the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Lord, by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit, speak into the thoughts and intentions of our hearts this day. As we read from the Gospels of Matthew and John, as we think about the whole of Scripture, and as we seek to be faithful followers of you who do not settle for half-truths, but people who seek whole truth, full of grace, full of truth, and all of this a gift from you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 38. This is a little bit into Matthew's gospel where the Pharisees and Sadducees keep closing in on Jesus, trying to corner him, trying to trick him, trying to prove to the people that he's a not a good teacher. And this is where we pick up in verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. And one of them, an expert in the law, 
tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then moving to John chapter 13. We're picking up just verses 34 and 35 today, but but this is uh, part of what's called the farewell discourse in John, where, where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure, before his betrayal and crucifixion. And this is right before Simon Peter pledges to never leave Jesus, and Jesus predicts his betrayal. But focusing today just on verses 34 and 35. From John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We imitate and emulate people that we respect and look up to. If you have a role model, you will begin to follow them in such a way that you learn to see the world the way they see the world. You will learn to talk the way they talk, both intentionally and just passively. When you follow someone closely because you care about them, you respect them, you revere them, you will take on some of their traits, some of their phrases, some of their idiosyncrasies. I was asked on Wednesday night after Kids Quest was done, I was asked by one of our youth, Sabrina Brown, um, who's someone that I admire and look up to? And with just a little bit of thought, I said, my dad. And there's a whole host of reasons for that, but then that that question prompted me more and more as I thought about this week's sermon in terms of some of the things that I say, think, do, and believe because I respect my dad and I emulate him. And before I give an example, one thing I do just want to own in the space is that I, I treat that as a great privilege. And I know that not everyone here had parents who set the bar at the rate where they would necessarily choose them as role models. There is a lot of pain in the world and a lot of painful situations. And so I'm all the more grateful for the ways in which I could look up to my dad. And I realize that I say some of the things that he says. Uh, For instance, every time I notice my slightly receding hairline, my dad loves to say, what you see is what you'll be. Every time. And I caught myself a few weeks ago with one of our youth downstairs who was making a comment about his dad. And I said, what you see is what you'll be. And I was like, I'm becoming my dad at an alarming rate. Um, Definitely have all of the Blues Brothers memorized. I grew up thinking that was my favorite musical. I would argue it does count. My dad would also say things like, you are responsible for your actions not other people's 
reactions. That was his proverb for living with integrity. He would also say things in communication like, it's not what you say, it's what they hear. Meaning if there's a misunderstanding in communication, you might have tried to be as clear as you could, but someone can still walk away misunderstanding you. My dad would also say things like, don't sweat the petty things and don't pet the sweaty things. (laughs) Why? But I say it too. And to coach us in both humility and confidence, my dad liked to remind us kids that everyone knows something that you don't. Let that sink in with the humility of anytime you're with a group of people, everyone knows something that you don't. Everyone has something to contribute to the conversation. Everyone has something that you can learn from. And similarly, with confidence, you can know that anytime you're with a group of people, there's something that you know that they don't know, something that you have to offer, something that you bring to the table. And we believe this is true because God has, gift, has gifted us all in different ways. There's a myriad of, of serious and weird and funny and proverbial phrases that I pick up on because of my dad. And my mannerisms, apparently as I age, become more and more like his. Now, all of this to say, I can notice the ways that I talk like my dad because I know him, because I respect him. But my parents would both say that they they don't care how much we imitate them. In fact, sometimes I think my mom would rather that I imitate my dad a little bit less. They don't care how much we imitate them. What they do care about is that we honor and glorify God by how we live, by imitating Jesus. Because God is triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But the clearest understanding of who God is is given to us in the Gospels as we learn who Jesus is, fully divine, fully human, fully God, fully part of the Trinity. And so if we follow Jesus, we will learn to talk like Jesus. We will learn, if we seek to imitate Jesus to the best of our ability, we will learn to see the world the way Jesus saw the world. We'll learn to ask the questions that Jesus asked, to think about the answers that Jesus gave. And we do all of this if we're seeking to follow Jesus. Friends, I hope that is our intent as God's gathered people here that we are seeking to follow Jesus, to imitate him. And when we do, we'll talk the way Jesus talked. Which brings us to our final of the half-truths. Love the sinner, hate the sin. It's not something that Jesus ever said. It's a very common phrase. The, The church has made it popular, but it's not something that Jesus said. In fact, it's, it's not anywhere else in the Bible. There's one thing that sounds a little bit like it, but we will get there um, probably around the time your first peppermint is done. Jesus never said, love the sinner, hate the sin. Jesus gave us a much simpler and yet all-encompassing phrase. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is this not simpler? 
Love your neighbor as yourself. And to know that this is the second commandment and all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now here's why I say that it's simpler. I grew up hearing this phrase and I will say I've used it a fair amount and I've distanced myself from it over time. And I hope that the distancing is because we're paying more attention not to what's trendy to say within the church, but we're seeking to talk the way Jesus talked. And Jesus simply said, love your neighbor as yourself. The early recollections I have of hearing love the sinner, hate the sin, were very well-intended sentiments to say, we are still going to care about that person, but we are holding on to the fact that they've done something very wrong. Now, I grew up in a small town. So you can imagine when one of our youth leaders got a DUI, it was a big deal. And word spread really quick. And the first thing I remember hearing about it was love the sinner, hate the sin. Meaning we're, even as, as someone has to walk in a small town full of awkwardness of everybody knows what you did and what happened, that we, we still need to love this person, but we're also holding on to there's some reparations to be made. I heard this about a friend um, in the community once again in my upbringing um, when alcoholism had become very problematic. I heard love the sinner, hate the sin, meaning there's a lot of judgment on this person. We're trying to hold on to our connection to them, but we also, we are putting a label on them. You notice that Jesus didn't label sinners because It's simpler to say, love your neighbor as yourself. It it covers all the bases because even when love the sinner, hate the sin is used, it ends up being qualified, right? We say, love the sinner, hate the sin, but we're all sinners, but we're trying to repent of our sins and we're wondering if maybe they're not, but that's also not something that we can know with perfect omniscience the way Jesus does. Jesus just says, love your neighbor as yourself. So what's interesting, if Jesus labels people as neighbors, what is our instinct coming from that we want to make sure that we label people as sinners, knowing that we're all sinners, but that also that we are all neighbors, that we were called to be neighbors, and that in the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, this was a question of Who is my neighbor? Someone who is seeking to live according to the great commandments of love the Lord your God God with all your heart, soul, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man who was trying to prove himself to Jesus said, I've done all of that. What else must I do? And Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan where someone who would be looked down upon was the one who helped. And Jesus simply asked, and who was the neighbor? And it was the one who showed mercy the one who did not label distinguishments between Jew and Samaritan, but just knew neighbors. Similarly, Jesus does not label us as sinners, though Jesus, make no mistake, Jesus knows our sin better than we know it. There are things in our lives that are probably a blind spot or a mystery to us. It is no mystery to Jesus. Jesus knew the woman at the well in John chapter 4. He knew everything about what was going on in her life. He knew her sin with perfect accuracy before she even said it. Jesus knows our sin 
better than we do. And Jesus knows other people's sins more than we could ever be aware of. And yet he tells us to love those neighbors. And he calls us friends. In John chapter 15, if you're still open to John 13, move to John 15 for a moment to hear a continuation of this love your neighbor and love each other speech. John chapter 15, picking up at verse 12, Jesus said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This command, this is my command, love each other. Jesus, even when the Pharisees and Sadducees would try to entrap him, even when they would um, catch him at, in John 8 with the woman who was caught in adultery, Jesus points out to her, there is no one left to condemn you, neither do I condemn you. Jesus is always talking about God's forgiveness. And he does have conviction and tells people to leave their life of sin or to go. But friends, we in the church might be making a mistake of emphasis that we almost get more excited and antsy to remember that Jesus said, well, he also told her to leave her life of sin. But that's not where he started. What came first in primary was Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone. Everybody's gone. No one's left to condemn you. That's the climax of the story. The aftermath is also a call to repentance. But if we try to overemphasize what Jesus emphasized differently, it's worth asking why. If Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, Labeling everyone as a neighbor, and we want to make sure for some reason to hold on really strongly to love the sinner, hate the sin, that we want to keep the sinner label. Even when Jesus gave us a simpler, straightforward way in summarizing all the law and prophets, it's worth wondering why. And I hope that our impetus to speak this way, to simply say, love your neighbor as yourself, is because we are trying to imitate Jesus. We want to view the world the way Jesus views the world, which means we want to view people the way Jesus viewed people. When Jesus didn't label as sinners or outcasts, Jesus labeled as neighbor and friend. We should be careful to not make distinctions in how we speak if Jesus already gave us a better way forward. And it might help us to remember that we are all sinners. We know this to be true. That's why the phrase is actually very well-intentioned. But what is it that we're holding on to? Often, I think the most popularity of the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin, has been used in in any scenario of human sexuality and same-sex attraction. And for some reason, 
that's where we put the most emphasis on saying love the sinner, hate the sin. That there's some reason that just saying love your neighbor as yourself doesn't quite cut it. The church, we as the church have popularized the phrase, one that Jesus didn't give us. In fact, one that Jesus gave us, I think, a better alternative. What if you view someone just as neighbor? What we call people sinks into our brains. Nomenclature shapes culture. What you call something will change your perception of what it is. And who is your neighbor? That's an uphill battle against Jesus to say anything other than everyone is my neighbor. Jesus told us to pray for those who persecute us. Love your neighbor as yourself. Doesn't mean that every neighbor is someone that we agree wholeheartedly with. And maybe that's what we're trying to hold on to with love the sinner, hate the sin. But is it not still possible to say, love your neighbor as yourself, knowing that no two, no two people in this room, myself included with any of us, would agree on every single thing 100%. Now, some of those are trivial and fun. What car do you drive? Um, what, what team do you cheer for? But even in terms of theological discussion, even in terms of what we believe, identity, politics, everything, we tend to have this assumption that our neighbor can only be those that we have everything in common with. Everyone is our neighbor. Everyone is our neighbor. And so we're going to have to love our neighbor as ourself, even the neighbors that we disagree with. And perhaps what's lacking the most in our culture today is that we have some fear, even some anger, about those who think differently to the point where we, cannot, we don't feel we can critique our own people, maybe if it's on our side of the quote-unquote, our side of the aisle. We won't critique our own people because they're getting enough criticism, so we have to defend them no matter what. Or, or maybe we can't give any credit to our enemy if they got something right because we kind of want to hold on to our side is better. So we make distinctions like love the sin or hate the sin. Because we don't want to give credit where credit is due. And we don't want to back down from our own position. But that has nothing to do with what Jesus said about loving your neighbor as yourself. The phrase that is closest to that in Scripture is Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Where the Apostle Paul writes, Love must be sincere Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. And then the letter continues, though, in saying, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, meaning you don't have to abandon your convictions, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need and practice hospitality. One thing that I have learned from other people that I respect and look up to is that you can hold on to all of your convictions and not forego any compassion. 
it's almost that we assume if we show too much compassion, people will misunderstand our convictions, and I don't think that's true. I learned from my dad that gentleness and strength can coexist. Some of you have met him. He's a pretty big guy. He's also very gentle, and I can beat him at ping pong. He's gotten older and slower. That has helped. I'll I'll grant him that. Gentleness and strength can coexist. What I also learned from someone else, someone that many of us know, his name was Jan Nienhuis, was that compassion and conviction can coexist. If we seek to love our neighbor as ourself, then we can have all the conviction in the world and it will not sacrifice our compassion. That our loving our neighbor will always put compassion forward with no abandonment of conviction. But we should be careful that our convictions do not cause us to label in a way that Jesus didn't. So friends, to wrap up a, a, two-week, uh, a two-week segment into one week, I would offer the simple correction that when you hear or when you say, love the sinner, hate the sin, what distinction are you trying to make? What qualifier are you trying to add? And to push back in that moment and to wonder, does it work just as well, if not better, to say, love your neighbor as yourself. If you're a sinner and your neighbor's a sinner, loving your neighbor as yourself has that covered. And to know that when Jesus said in John 13, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, that's the bar set really, really high. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is Jesus we're talking about who knows us better than we know ourselves, who knows our hearts, who knows the best of us, who knows the ways that we're gifted, that we should be confident and and full of life, and Jesus, who knows every weakness that we have, every temptation that we fall prey to. Jesus knows our sin better than we know it ourselves, and yet he loved us and called us friends. So to love your neighbor as yourself is to say, if Jesus loved me, To that degree, before I had any knowledge of who he was, as we say in baptism, we love because Christ first loved us. If that is the love of Jesus for us, and that's how we're supposed to spread the church's witness, as I have loved you, so you must love one another, then the bar is set pretty high to love our neighbor as ourself. It's simpler, it's clearer. And it's the phrase that we should use if we are seeking to imitate Jesus. To view people the way he viewed people, to talk the way Jesus talked, and to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. Love your neighbor as yourself. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray.